Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Genesis chapters 21 um, and part of 22. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, and at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And Genesis 22, from 1 through to 19. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the, and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood, and then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord came out to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of all their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. If 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through it. And even with all the distractions around us right now, I pray, Lord, that you will um, settle our hearts and uh, give us uh, open hearts and open minds to, to receive your word, to consider what it looks like uh, as your people, as your church, to, to live it out, to, to respond to it, and to be uh, a people that honor your name. And we pray for that now in your son's name. Amen. Uh, I came across an article this last week um, by the, the speaker, Brene Brown. Do you guys know who she is? Does anyone here know, have has heard the name Brene Brown. She's got a doco on uh, Netflix and she's done a lot of TED Talks. So that's how she got uh, really well-known and famous. Uh, she does a lot of uh, talk, talking about how, to, how do we uh, approach shame and vulnerability. Uh, one of my favorite books actually by her is um, Men and Shame and talking about how men uh, address their shame in their lives and, and consider it uh, and, and work through that. There's this article that I came across by her and she spoke about how we live in a culture now, a society that worries a lot about scarcity. Worries a lot about the, uh, a scarcity mindset where, uh, that thrives in a culture where everyone is hyper aware of our lack, our lack of stuff, right? The lack of resources, the lack of money, the lack of love, the lack of safety. She recognizes how we spend inordinate amounts of time calculating how much we have, how much we want, how much we don't have, and how much everyone else has, needs, and wants. She says that our culture uh, of scarcity is defined by this sentence, never blank enough, right? What she means is uh, you, you can fill that blank in with what, what's in your heart, never good enough. You might feel like you're never smart enough, never successful enough, never pretty enough, never popular enough, never safe enough, never thin enough, never strong enough, whatever it might be. She continues, right, and talks about this. She says the three components of scarcity are our shame, comparison and disengagement. Those are the three components, shame, comparison, and disengagement. And I totally feel that. I totally feel that. When I was reading that, I was like, yeah, my shame, uh, when I compare myself to others, the, the, when I disengage, I spiral, and I, I live in that culture of scarcity. I, I, know, I know it because I hear myself tell it to my heart. I, I'll, I'll just never be good enough. I'll never be smart enough. I'll never, uh, I'll, I'll never achieve enough. I'll never be able to, <laughs> this is one that I always tell me, I'll never, I'll never be able to please everyone enough. There's a song in that um, movie, what's the movie? The Greatest Showman. Hugh Jackman, have you guys seen it? It's a song called Never Enough. And Heidi says, that's the theme song of my life. Because <laughs> I just feel like I'm never enough. I never have enough. I'm never there. And, and, and some of us, you know, we feel that, don't we? And we throw ourselves outside of our work into our side hustles. We do more hobbies. We, 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 we pack out our schedules because we feel that scarcity, that culture of scarcity so strongly. And Brene Brown, she has these, these methods, these, um, solutions. She says to transform that culture of scarcity within ourselves, we need to cultivate a worthiness, a clear sense of purpose, and we need to re-engage. Right? Worthiness, a clear sense of purpose, and we need to re-engage. Now, I appreciate her words. I think they're helpful. She speaks to the human heart and the human experience. And while I do believe her books and the things she says are super helpful, what if there was an answer to our scarcity culture that was found in knowing God? What if God himself was enough so we wouldn't be defined by that sentence, never, we never have enough? You see, Genesis 22 is about an event that happened thousands of years ago, a story about a dad, a father, and his son. But it's a story that points us to a God who is enough and has given us everything to be enough. 
I'm going to unpack three things about what God does in this story, and then we're going to think about uh, how Abraham's story and God's story is relevant to us today. Right? Those three things, God's promise, God's command, and God's provision. Right? Let's look at God's promise first. To understand what's happening in this chapter, we have to, again, go back to the context. Every week I say that, don't I? To understand what's happening in this chapter, we've got to understand the context around this chapter, because this chapter is not written in isolation. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, though, chapter 12 of our series. God approaches Abraham and asks Abraham to leave his home, the safety of his home, to go to a new land. In chapter 12, verse 1, I've got it on the screen for us. Uh, it says, The Lord is coming up any second now. The Lord has said to it's quite small. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the promise. That was given to Abraham from the very start. God makes a promise. He'll inherit a new land. He'll become a great nation with lots of descendants and lots of offspring. And he will be blessed. People will be blessed through him. A people, a place, and blessing. To receive that, he had to go. He had to leave the safety and peace of his father's household with his wife, Sarah, and go into the unknown. And so over the last 10 chapters, haven't we, in the last eight weeks, we've followed Abraham's story as he travels from region to region, interacting with God, walking and increasing in faith, trusting God with each step. Sometimes Abraham failed. Sometimes Abraham struggled to trust. But more importantly, we've seen God uh, faithfully at work, giving him assurance through covenant signs and showing Abraham his power and majesty as a God who is a promise keeper. We've seen that over the last eight weeks. Now, as we come towards the later part of Abraham's life, we're seeing God fulfilling what he set out to do through Abraham and Sarah. Sarah, who was barren, we heard that back in chapter uh, even 11, was promised a child. God would open her womb. Now they're like 90 years old, 100 years old, respectively. These two oldies, they conceive a son. That's what we read in chapter 21. That's what Georgie read for us. Right? Isaac was born. We come to this place where God's promise is finally fulfilled. Isaac, his name means the one who laughs. And it's insightful. It's really meaningful. Because if you look at the chapters that we uh, have looked at already, chapter 17, I've got this on the screen as well. It says, Abraham felt when he was told about having a baby at this late age, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Genesis 18, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? You know, it's crazy because 17 and 18, they're both laughing. Chapter 21, Isaac is born. What does, what does Sarah say? Chapter 21, verse 5 to 6. 26, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. You see, Abraham laughs, Sarah laughs, and the God is the one who has the last laugh, isn't he? Yeah, Isaac means the one who laughs. Now, if you know someone called Isaac, maybe in our church, you know, go to him and laugh with him. Don't laugh at him. That would be rude, but you can laugh with him. That's, you know, that's what it's about. You know. But God has called the son of Abraham the one who laughs. Isn't this wonderful? Imagine that. Imagine that you've been waiting, you've been holding out so long for this promise to be fulfilled, and it's finally happened. You've been holding out so long for, for years at your work and you, you finally got that promotion. You know, all those long hours and overtime, the boss calls you in and says, hey, the job is yours. You've been holding out so long. You've been uh, patiently you know, trying to find that special someone, that one that you can have your happily ever after with. And you found them. You found him or her. 
You've been house hunting every weekend. Some of our guys here know, how's that, you know how that feels. Every weekend, open homes again and again, auctions here and there, you know. And then you finally found it. Your forever home, you put down that, that offer, it goes unconditional. Wow, what a feeling. You've been trying to get pregnant. Years and years. And one day, it happens. God provides you a baby. God has blessed you with the child. That feeling, you can imagine, it's a good one, isn't it? For Abraham, the promises you've been banking on since you left your father's house 25 years ago, they're finally coming to fruition. 25 years of waiting. Your barren wife, you, you lost complete and utter hope that you'd ever have a child. Well, your wife has now been blessed. A miracle has happened. The son you've ever always wanted. The son that was promised to you. You see, the promise of God in giving Abraham a son frames this chapter. We have to understand that promise is, is why this chapter is so, is so important. It's why it's here for us. And so as we get into chapter 22, which we're going to focus on, we should be thinking, how will God fulfill the rest of his promises now that Isaac has been born? God gave the promise to Abraham. Now he gives a command. Let's look at ch uh, chapter 22. Let's read it again, just the first couple of verses. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Chapter 22, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Think about what he's saying here. Back in chapter 12, what did God command? He said, go. Go and leave your father's house to the land I promise you. Chapter 22 begins with another command. God said, take your son, go. Go to the region of Moriah, the mountain where you will sacrifice your son Isaac. And we're seeing these book ends, really, aren't we? The ends of the, you know, this frame, this whole narrative, it's framed with Abraham going out of the land that he's from, going out of his safety, and going again out of the safety of having a child now to, to sacrifice it. We've hit the climax of his story. It says God is testing Abraham. He's testing Abraham. This, this isn't a test where it's pass or fail, though. God isn't trying to catch Abraham out. This is the all-knowing God. He knows Abraham's heart, what Abraham will do, but it's a testing that will strengthen Abraham, a testing that will reveal the heart of faith, an outward action that reveals his trust. Essentially, he wants Abraham to walk through the furnace and come through the other side, to ask Abraham to put his faith into action. What will that require? They will require him to give up the very thing Abraham has been waiting for for so long, his one and only son. Just read how God describes Isaac. He says, your son, your only son, your beloved son, the son whom you love. You can imagine for Abraham, his son Isaac was his everything. I know some of the parents here, when you had your, your first child, you're like, wow, I never knew I could love someone so much. I didn't even want kids before, but now that I have a kid, wow. Imagine how Abraham's feeling, my beloved son. You know, while he might have felt the scarcity of not having enough, Isaac came into the picture. He was his everything. And so the story we have in front of us is a heart-wrenching one, isn't it? Between a father and son, a father who loves his son and is commanded by God to go up and give up your one and only son. Not just to give up, but to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. What? Like... You know, the one I've been waiting for is now here and now you're asking me to let him go? Imagine being Abraham. Haven't I done enough, God? I left my home. 
you know, I, I've walked with you, I've trusted you, I even got circumcised for you. Come on, God. Now you want me to give up my own one and only son? We should feel the horror of this command. We should really feel how, how, how tragic it is. And, and child sacrifice sounds completely unlike what a loving, go- good God would want. If you guys have, have read anything from that, that, that secular atheist Richard Dawkins, you would have, he picks up on this idea. The atheist Richard Dawkins in the book, The God Delusion, he writes about this test Abraham goes through. And he, he talks about how it would have caused some real psychological trauma. If we applied modern morality standards, this would have been child abuse. And yes, by modern morality standards, it would have been. I agree. But Dawkins doesn't really do a great job. He doesn't do a great job at a historical context. He doesn't do a great job at proper biblical interpretation. Let's, let's remember what's going on in this world that Abraham lived in. Thousands and thousands of years, the ancient world. See, in ancient cultures and religions, there were gods that asked for child sacrifices. It was actually a thing. Uh, there was a god, Molech, in the Bible, you can read about it. He required child sacrifices in these other pagan religions. See, that's the backdrop. If you go on Wikipedia, you can look it up. Other cultures did this. It's a backdrop of what's happening with Abraham and other people groups. It's, a, it's not so much a surprise if you were one of the ancient readers of this text. But not only that, the culture, it was communal, right? The family was a unit. And the firstborn son meant a lot. The firstborn son was a lit- like, essentially the representative of the family. All the hopes and dreams was placed on the firstborn son. And so when God asked to offer him up, he's not just saying, hey, go murder your son. He's saying, offer him up as a burnt offering. What is that saying? What's a burnt offering? Usually an animal sacrifice is a burnt offering. It's t- for atonement of sins. Your sins have been forgiven in, because there's an animal, a substitute in your place for your sin. So when God is asking for the firstborn son to be offered up as a burnt offering, what he's saying is your son, the atonement that's offered, the, the forgiveness is going to be for your whole family. Right? So that's the culture. That's a picture that Abraham's thinking of when God is asking him, Bring your son, offer him up as a, burnt, as a burnt sacrifice, as an offering. That's a culture, and that's what God is commanding Abraham to test him. But let's add another layer to this, because yes, God makes this command of Abraham, but what does Abraham know of God? Remember the context. This is a God who has delivered Abraham who has been good and holy and righteous, a God who sees, a God who hears, a God who intervenes and has blessed Abraham, has blessed Abraham so much so far. And he's made a promise to Abraham. Remember the the promise that he'll have many offspring, many descendants that will come through the line of Isaac. Abraham knows that. And so Abraham has hope. Yes, God requires a sacrifice, but he also knows that God will come through. God has always come through. Somehow, some way, he doesn't know. But even as we read the text, we, we see hints of it. When he goes with his servants on the third day, we hear this third day language. He, on the third day, he, he arrives at the uh, Moriah. He says to his servants, verse 5, Stay here with a donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We will return together. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I don't know if you've seen memes on this. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. 
And the two of them went on together. God will provide the lamb for the offering, my son. You see, even these, these words here that Abraham gives, there's a, there's a hint of hope. The, the, the narrative, narrative is there to help us see what faith looks like. It looks like faith in obedience. It's not a blind faith, not a blind obedience. It comes within that greater context of Abraham's life. He's seen God at work in his life already. He's seen miracles happen. And so as he takes one step after the next up this mountainside, he'll trust God again. God will deliver. The God that he knows is holy and good. You see, what might actually help us understand what, what's going on in Abraham's mind is actually what Hebrews tells us in the New Testament. Uh, the amazing thing is the Bible often interpret, interprets itself. And so you go to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews interprets this passage for us. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. I've got it on the screen, I think. It says, Hebrews 11... By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. You see, Abraham was obedient to God because he knew one, that Isaac's line was the one that would be blessed, and two, that whatever happened, Isaac would return down the mountainside with him. He doesn't know how, perhaps it is because that he believed that he would be raised back from the dead. Abraham has seen God at work. This isn't some sort of magic hocus-pocus belief. This is a, a God at work in his life again and again, who's performed miracles. Not a blind faith, but one built on God's character. God's faithfulness, God's previous actions. And most importantly, though, Abraham sees God, has seen God, hasn't he, already bring the dead back to life. What do I mean by that? Well, think about Sarah. Think about Sarah's womb. At 90 years old, it's been dead for so long, a barren womb. Hasn't God brought life to Sarah's womb, brought the dead back to life? Getting pregnant, being able to conceive? God did that. And so when Abraham is called, commanded really, to offer up his son, he goes in faithful obedience, trusting God will provide, trusting the God that can bring the dead back to life. And isn't that what we see? We see a God who provides. So God, he's promised, God has commanded, God provides. Verse 9, let's read it together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him up on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. See, at this moment, what we see is Abraham's trust and love for God on display. He comes through the furnace. His faith is purified and shines and God acknowledges his fear of the Lord. Not a fear that makes him scared of God. No, a fear that is one of awe and reverence of the greatness of who God is. He's willing to give up everything for this God, even his one and only beloved son, on the altar of sacrifice for God. And God in his grace provides. God is unlike the other gods of ancient pagan religions. He doesn't require child sacrifices. What happens? God provides a substitute, 
Verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And on this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. It is the same mountain that the temple of Jerusalem is, is, is built, Mount Moriah. If you ever uh, come across the, the Hebrew name for God, it, you often you might hear the, the name Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh, this is where it comes from. It means the God who provides. God comes through again and again for Abraham, and here he provides a substitute for his son. You can imagine, can't you, how Isaac might be feeling as a sigh of relief. You know, he's probably thinking, what in the world is going on? Am I being punked? What is going on, right? But let me, let me flip the script for a moment, right? Let's imagine for a moment if Abraham did kill Isaac. Just imagine with me for a moment if God didn't show up and that was it. How would you feel? How would you feel as a reader of this? Like, what? That's it? Uh, I imagine to be a bit like, a, say, a billionaire rocks up. Jeff Bezos, he rocks up, he goes, Mikey, look, I promise you in 10 years' time, 25 years' time, I'm going to give you a billion dollars, okay? You just have to wait, you just have to trust me, billion dollars in 20, 25 years' time. And I'm living my life thinking, oh, I've got a billion dollars waiting for me. You live my life in light of that, right? And I, I live my life thinking, that's where I'm going, that's what's going to happen to me. He shows up, 25 years later, he hands me a, a duffel bag, let's say a billion dollars can fit in a duffel bag, and he goes, here, Mikey, Enjoy. And just as he hands it to me, he grabs a lighter. He goes, nah, just kidding. Lights it on fire. Right in front of me. How would you feel? Like you feel like you just, well, just dog move right there. If Isaac was killed in this moment, you'd be feeling, come on. You're hoping at least the resurrection's going to happen. But if not, this God, man, he's, he's a bit shady, isn't he? Super untrustworthy, childish even. But what? that's not what we see. We see in Abraham's story. We see a man who is living by promise, Abraham, who is obedient to God's commands. But more, most importantly, don't we see a God who is faithful and generous in provision? And hasn't that been the, the pattern of his character so far in Genesis? Uh, a picture again and again we've seen throughout these last 10 chapters, God doing the extraordinary, blessing Abraham again and again through providing for him. That's the character of God that we know. So then how much more for us as Christians today, living in 2022, how much more for us as Christians will we believe and trust a God who provides? The one who has received the promise of Christ. Think about it. The truth is we all deserve the death that Isaac was going to receive. Isaac was facing death for the sins of Abraham and his family, for his sin. He was the burnt offering. And isn't that our fate too? Death for our sin against God? Our sin requires payment. People say to me, Mikey, if God is God, couldn't he just snap his fingers and just forgive sins? I've heard this before. So many people have asked, but tell me, where is the justice in that? Who pays for the offense? Someone has to pay for justice to be done. And if the offense is against God, who's going to pay for that? Death is required. That's the consequence of our sin. And when we look at ourselves, we all have to admit, don't we? We've committed offenses against God. Let's be honest. And so back in those days, animal sacrifices were made. They were the, the form of atonement for sin, the life of the animal for yours. But animal sacrifices, weren't, weren't, they're never going to cut it, right? 
They were just a foreshadowing, a preview. We needed a great, we need a greater substitute. We need Jesus. See, while Isaac, Abraham's beloved son, had the wood laid on his back as he walked up the mountain, we see the Son of God, Jesus, wooden cross laid on his back as he walked up the mountain. Willingly, knowingly, to be the sacrifice, to die for us. When Abraham told Isaac, God will provide the lamb for the offering, he in that moment was speaking to something far greater than what would happen at Mount Moriah. It was on Mount Calvary where Jesus stretched out his arms to die on a cross so that you and I wouldn't have to face the death that was deserved for our sin, that we deserve for our sin. See, in John chapter 8 in the Gospels, Verse 56, Jesus said this to the people, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. See, Abraham, when he talks about this offering, that the lamb will be provided, he's speaking to something far greater. For Abraham, yes, God provided a ram for Abraham, but the lamb of God was provided for you and for me so that our past, present, and future sins could be atoned for. While Abraham, who loves and is so committed to God, is willing to sacrifice his only beloved son, the Gospels tell us we have a God who loves and is so committed to us that he actually did sacrifice his one and only son, his beloved son. You see, in this story, it's not Isaac, but it's the ram. In Genesis 22, it's the ram. That's Jesus for us. That's the lamb of God, the substitute that's been provided, a sacrifice for you and I, for Abraham and for Isaac. While we struggle in a world where we never feel like we're enough, we have a God who gave up everything for us so that we would be able to see and know that we have more than enough. Life. Life abundant. Why is Genesis 22 so important for us? Because we get to meet and see Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides for Abraham, the God who provides for us, the one who promises and has given his one and only son a substitute for our sins, salvation for our souls. You see, for Abraham, for if you've been following, it was back in chapter 15, wasn't it? Faith was credited to him as righteousness. He's been saved already. It was found to be right, he was found to be right before because he chose to trust God. But here in chapter 22, God tested his faith. God wanted him to, be, to his, put his faith into action through obedience to his command. Here's the question we have to ask ourselves. What does our faith and trust in God look like? Is it merely lip service to God? Will we also look, will we also, what will it look like to, to walk through the furnace and trials of life to show that Jesus is enough? Perhaps a better question for us is to ask, what is the Isaac in our lives? the very thing that is your everything. That if God asked you to bring it before the altar of sacrifice, would you be willing to give it up? Would you be willing to give it up because you truly trusted God and believe that He could and will provide? What comes to mind? Is it your career? Is it your wealth, your materialism that you possess, the, the, the security that you have? Your need to find a husband or wife? your very family or child that has become so much more important to you than God himself. They can be good things, but when we elevate them to God's status, we put them on the altar of worship, don't we? What what is it for you? Your comfort, your need for recognition, your status, your need to be loved? That blank that Brene Brown said, what is that blank that you filled in when you have that scarcity mindset that you never feel like you have enough of? 
Friends, it's those very things in our hearts, those idols that are leading us away from the salvation our souls need. And I understand. I get it. I feel it. To give up those good things even for God might seem like it would kill us. I mean, we waited so long for that promotion. I'm done doing overtime. But you know what? When when, When I got that promotion, yeah, I can see it. I don't have time for church anymore. I don't have time to serve Jesus. But hey, I got the promotion. It'd kill me to give it up. Yes, I raised my child to be smart, to study and work hard, to be a, a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. But what? They want to be a missionary now? A missionary to the Middle East? What? No way. It'd kill me to see them go down that path. What? To let go of my ambitions? To let go of all my plans and dreams? For the sake of the gospel? Yes, God might ask that of you. Not because he wants to destroy your dreams and make you miserable. No, because he loves you. And in his great mercy, he calls you to surrender it all so you can be saved. Friends, Christ is enough. Because you have Christ, you can live without the idols you're worshipping more than God. You see, too often I find that the the middle-class Christian... Right? In, our, in our Western society, the truth is our idol is our, is our comfort, isn't it? We accept Christianity, and then we make Christianity comfortable. We commit when it's convenient, when it suits us. And let's be honest, we all live in Brisbane here, right? Brisbaneites. We're all about convenience and comfort. <laughs> Don't ask me to drive to the north side. Anything over 30 minutes, that's too far. If it's too hard, it's too uncomfortable, it's, if it's a sacrifice, count me out. And isn't that too often our faith as well? We tell our hearts, surely God doesn't want me to take my family overseas to be missionaries. I mean, to reach the unreached. That's too out of my comfort zone. Surely God doesn't expect me to open my house up every week to do hospitality. That's my house. That's my space. Surely God doesn't want me to sacrifice, what, a luxury car or choose to have a frugal holiday just so I can give more money away. Surely God doesn't want that. Sacrifice something I love for Him? Really? Yes, because God loves you enough to save you from the false hope that they give. We all, we all need to do the heart work right now. What are those things that you're terrified of giving up? When you dig deep in your heart, what are those things that you've put on the altar of worship, that your life revolves around that isn't God? Friends, Hear me, hear me say this once. I'm going to say this once. Leave those idols upon the altar of sacrifice so that Christ our Savior can be on the altar of worship. We can't leave Genesis 22 without asking ourselves those hard questions, right? And for, for me to implore us all, me included, we must surrender them before the cross of Jesus. Let the cross of Christ shape your life. The truth is, we need to see in Abraham's narrative that living by promise isn't just lip service, is it? For the past 10 chapters, we're seeing faith lived out through action. Let's not get too distracted by that. Through, through deeds that have overflowed from a heart that believes. Like we've seen Abraham live out his faith, haven't we? Actions from a heart that trusts God. You know, we, many of us know that, that, how it works. While we're saved by grace through faith, in faith alone, right? In Abraham, in God alone. In Abraham, we've seen we, he's been saved by faith. But faith without works is what? Is dead, isn't it? 
Faith without works is dead faith. The book of James talks about this in the New Testament. It actually refers back to Genesis 22. There's so many things in the New Testament that go back to Genesis 22. In James 2, it says, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Verse 22, you see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. The testing of Abraham was to see his faith made complete. Will you walk in faith with God through the furnace, through the trials of life? Will you trust him and his commands for you in obedience because you love him? Because like Abraham, you believe he is worthy of our sacrifices. Well, let me ask you this. Is your faith dead? Friends, it won't be easy. No way. It'll be a challenge. And like Abraham, it might be the hardest thing you'll ever do, but to look to Christ, to see the joy and peace that has gone before you as he went to the cross before us, that's where our hope is. That's what empowers us. That's what motivates us. That's what inspires us. As I think about Christians who sacrifice for the gospel, I think about men and women who don't struggle as much with that scarcity mindset. They aren't looking for society to fill their heart desires. Not materialism, not the fulfillment of their dreams, whatever that means in our postmodern millennial Gen Z culture. Fulfill your dreams. Not the need for validation or the, the need for whatever thing that social media or Western culture says that you need more of. Right? The Christian who's willing to sacrifice their everything is a Christian who knows they've been gifted everything in Christ. You see, if we don't know God like Abraham knew God, then we're always going to default back to what the world tells us. That's the culture. That's the, the context that we live in. And what is the world telling us? It's bombarding us, isn't it? With messages and, and pressure telling us that we never have enough. But here's what the gospel tells us. We have a God who loves us. A God who is enough. I mean, you go to Romans 8.31. It shares this truth with us. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Carl Worley, he's a co-host of the podcast Knowing Faith, he says this, The Son of God is not all we get with God, but the Son of God is where we get all that God has for us. The Son of God is not all we get with God, but the Son of God is where we get all that God has for us. Isn't that wonderful? It's through Christ that we have everything. I want those in the room who aren't Christians, right? If you're, you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to hear me on this. There's a reason why often you might come across Christians who aren't afraid to put themselves out there with what they believe. They have no shame when it comes to sharing about Jesus. They're willing to go up copious amounts of times, uh, time to, to, to serve people around them. They're willing to give up uh, big amounts of their own money to fund church and mission work, giving up uh, their weekends to serve their church and people they might hardly even know. And they'll do it with a, a big smile on their face and joy in their hearts. Not always smile on their face, but you know, they try. Because if they know Christ, they know a treasure that's far greater than anything this world can offer. Christ is enough. And I hope that will be true of every Christian in the room. 
that they deep down, that you and I deep down believe that Christ is enough. And it's shown through the great sacrifices we make for him. As I said earlier, Brene Brown's advice is helpful. Cultivate worthiness, a clear sense of purpose, re-engage. But as Christians in Christ, let me be clear. We have our worth, don't we? We have our purpose and we can re-engage because we have nothing to lose. We have everything. Friends, as we wrap up this series, the big theme has been living by promise. God gave promises to Abraham and called Abraham to trust him and to walk in faith. What will that look like for you and I? Each week we've been pointed to how these promises have been fulfilled, how this ancient story about Abraham and Sarah is relevant to us today, relevant through the lens of Jesus who fulfilled these very promises. You and I, we've received the promise that Christ's death and resurrection means salvation. Faith in him means eternal life. If you believe and know that's the promise given to us, will you walk in obedience and trust? Will you fear the Lord? Will you love Jesus? Will you live by promise? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, we thank you for you. We thank you how, how you've carried us through these uh, last 10 chapters of Genesis and helped us to see your character and your, uh, your, your, your work, your, your miracles, your, your actions. That you are a God who has promised, has commanded, and has provided. You fulfill your promises. You, you are the, the promise keeper. And Lord, we're so thankful for that. We're so thankful that through the, the, the narrative of the Bible, the greatest story of the gospel, we see Christ as the fulfillment of these promises. And we get to know Christ. The Christ who has died on the cross and was resurrected, that Christ is ours. When we put our faith and trust in Him, we get to live by promise. We get to follow your commands with joy. We get to know that you're the God who does provide for us, not just in this life, but the eternal life to come. And we pray, Lord, that that heavenly perspective, that, that future hope will shape our lives today. Help us to live knowing that we have life abundant, that we have everything already. We have enough in Christ. Help us not live with a scarcity mindset. Help us to live with joy because we have everything in Him, in You at the cross. Father, we, we pray for this in Your Son's name. Amen.